You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Good afternoon. Welcome to Conversations and Meditations. I'm your host, Virgil Ferrix, and today is September 29th, 2019. Hello, hello. Um, let's get right into the show. Um, actually, just another reminder uh, before we get into the show, uh, head to the website, www.conversationsandmeditations.com. A lot of new cool things coming out there, new uh, artwork, um, new uh, blog posts, new articles on certain things. So uh, get to check that out and see uh, some of the things that go on behind the scenes and some of the stuff that can uh, kind of give you some more information on some of the stuff we do talk about on the show. Okay, so getting that out of the way. So today's show is going to be about uh, – I, I wanted to have a show about this sooner or later, but – Logical fallacies, right? We we all uh, we, we all engage in them at times, and we all know what they are. But I want to particularly talk about, uh, I guess, some examples of a few of them um, and how they affect you know our lives and the com- the, the conversation going on within our society. So um, you know, logical fallacies are flaws in reasoning that lead to faulty illogical statements. Uh, they are not unre- you know unreasonable argumentative tactics. You know, uh, named for what has gone wrong during the reasoning process. Um, you know, fallacies are defects that weaken arguments. You know, first, fallacious arguments are you know very very common and can be quite persuasive, at least to the casual reader or listener. You can find dozens of examples of fallacious reasoning in newspapers, advertisements, and other sources. Um, you can even find them in uh, news programming as well. Um, you can find them, you know, through uh, CEOs and organizers in companies. You can find them in politicians. You can find fallacious arguments pretty much anywhere, <laughs> and in in your home well, with your friends. They, it exists throughout society. Um, second, it sometimes is hard to evaluate whether an argument is fallacious. Uh, it is quite tough uh, being able to figure this figure this out, and I guess having an idea of why and how these things are, you know, implemented into arguments and how they can actually cause some damage long term, at least to somebody's point of view or you know worldview in a sense. Um, so an argument might be very weak or somewhat weak or somewhat strong or very strong. You know, an argument that has several stages or parts might have some strong sections and, you know, some weak ones as well. Um, uh, but most logical fallacies masquerade as reasonable statements, you know, they, but they, you know, they tend to, uh, in fact, 
manipulate the readers by, you know, reaching their emotions instead of their intellects. So most of the time when this is going on, um, a statement is being made that causes some emotional trigger that will get a person to respond, you know, that way versus responding using their, their mind and using their reasoning skills and, you know, deduction. Um, and that's what we're getting into now. Um, so like, uh, all inductive, not deductive arguments are technically invalid. Uh, the, you know, the term most often used to distinguish good and bad inductive arguments are strong and weak. Um, an example of a strong inductive argument would be every day to date, the law of gravity has held. Therefore, the law of gravity will hold, will hold tomorrow. You know, arguments that fail to meet the standards of required of inductive arguments commit fallacies is in these informal fallacies that we are concerned with. You know, arguments consist of, you know, premises, premises, uh, interfer- uh, inferences, um, conclusions. Therefore, you'll be examining, you know, the premises, the inferences and the conclusions today in the discussion. Um, so fallacy of the fallacy of relevance clearly fails to provide adequate reasoning for believing the truth of their conclusions. They're often used in attempts to persuade people by non-logical means, only to you know, unwary, you know, only the unwary, the predisposed, and the gullible are apt for being fooled by illegitimate appeals. Uh, many of them were identified by medieval and Renaissance, you know, logicians whose Latin names for them have passed on to common use. And you know, an example of one of these is ad hominem, which is Latin for "to the man." Uh, so this directly attacks someone's appearance their personal habits or their you know their personal character rather than focusing on the merit of the issue at hand the implication is that if something is wrong with a person whatever he or she says must be wrong so i guess a way of uh i guess one way of putting this an example of this would be like how can you say he or she's a, a good musician when he or she is in you know out of has been out of rehab uh has been in and out of rehab for the last 3 years so that's kind of an example of an ad hominem, you know, focusing on the personal character of somebody to disqualify their their uh, skills, whether it's in, you know, an argumentative or whether it's in some other thing in life, like that example of the musician there. Um, so ad hominem, you know, arguments, and you've probably had this happen to you when you speak to uh, and you get into arguments with people and they get heated, they, you know, they, they tend to go to ad hominem arguments pretty, pretty quickly, I would say. So ad hominem arguments, you know, it's it, it's very personal. That's kind of what I'm trying to, you know, uh, relay here. So you could say that, you know, I guess you could say that, you know, uh, one of the ways to look at this is that it's intended to, I guess the psychology behind an ad hominem attack or, you know, our, you know fallacy is, is intended to get the person off their guard and make them, you know, react emotionally and, uh, you know, to to poison the well in terms of the discussion, in terms of the discussion, because it just makes it impossible to talk to that person after something like this. So an example here is uh, in terms of making it personal, Sarah is divorced. So whatever relationship advice she gives to you can't be good. So that type of um, you know, it's, it's the suggestion that not the person who makes them that deserves the attention. You know, Sarah's marital status has nothing to do with the quality of her advice. It isn't also possible that Sarah can be married and give awful advice. You know, um, 
one of the examples you could think about in this case is, you know, when someone says, oh, I wouldn't take advice from that person because of X, Y, and Z. Um, many times that's a very personal ad hominem attack. It has nothing to do with their quality of their advice because they could engage in X, Y, or Z and also give you terrible advice. So it has it doesn't really rely on that or sit on that. It's more so um, connected to the intention right there. So I guess the arguer suggests that her opponent's view is unacceptable, unacceptable because of some negative character trait. In, in you know in Sarah's case, attack the person rather than the argument. And this happens a lot to one another, and you've probably done it to people, and I've I've done it to people in the past, and you probably had it done to yourself. Um, and you know when you're in a discussion with somebody about something important, and they attack you versus attacking what you're got, what you're actually talking about, then there's no way to kind of come back from that in a calm fashion without you know having to check yourself and you know not react in, in a way. Um, so people who say that, so, an ex, you know, some, here's some, here's some more examples you could say people who say that hazing in the military is wrong are just a bunch of wimps. So that's, that's, you know, that's an example of, uh, another attack right there. Uh, so in other ways, he's a liar. So there's no reason to listen to him. Um, I guess with, with things like this, it isn't, it isn't so easy to it's pretty easy i would say to to figure out when this is being used because it focuses like i said on the person rather than attack, you know attacking the person rather than the argument itself so it it can be quite um circumstantial as well though you know the arguer suggests that you know her opponent's view is false because the opponent has something personal to gain if accepted so, you know, an example of this is, of course, France opposed the war in Iraq. They've got millions of dollars of contracts at stake. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, another example here would be that we should disregard the scientists' arguments because they're being funded by the logging industry. Um, so in, in this – like I said, in this case, arguments suggest that the opponent's view is false because the opponent has something personal to gain or lose if accepted. So that is, like I said, it can be circumstantial, of course, but you can see how this can be connected to other things within society and how it can cause people to look at uh, certain things like, like France opposing the war in Iraq. Like, yes, they did have um, contracts at stake and all this other stuff, but there was also humanitarian uh, notion with opposing the war in Iraq. So it was more than just, oh, we have contracts. Um, ad hominems, there's, you know... There's there's also something in ad hominems called tu quoque, which is you too. You know, in this case, the arguer suggests that the opponent's position is inconsistent with their own beliefs or actions, and therefore the position is false. So, one way of looking at this, an example of this would be: you're telling me to stop speeding on the highway. Uh, <laughs> that's an uh, you've received more speeding tickets than I have. That's like a an example that would be uh, a way of using like, well, you know, because you have a lot of speeding tickets there for why should I have to uh, think about this way? Um, you can, another thing going into politics, like, Oh, Gore's a hypocrite on camp, uh, campaign finance issues. He's raised uh, as much money as anyone. Um, another example is you say I shouldn't drink, but you have been sober. You haven't been sober in more than for more than a year. So that's like all these things that are attacks on the person rather than what they're actually saying. But 
really using the argument that, hey, you too, you're not, you haven't been sober. Why are you telling me I shouldn't drink? So there's a lot of problems when it comes to ad hominem attacks. And a lot of the time it's done by people uh, when they're losing the argument. Usually these types of uh, attacks or, you know, tactics are, are used. Uh, hey, you know, this and that. And it's, you know, you clearly can tell it's not, it has nothing to do with what you're talking about. At that point, you know, if you're experiencing this, my advice would be, you know, to take it as it comes and understand that the person using this is using this because they feel like they don't have a way to, to argue against what you're saying because you might be right or they might not have the tools at the time uh, to argue the case and they might actually be right and you might be wrong. Um but there is there is an understanding that this is you know an effort that people use last ditch effort people use to get the com- get the conversation the argument in their lane you know and now you're on your toes and having to respond to something you know an assertion that is quite 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 horrible you know so another example of this is if somebody uh let's say is against minimum wage laws for a certain reason saying that you know it stops the the people with the lowest amount of skills from being able to get a job let's say that's an argument that somebody makes if somebody makes that argument then somebody says oh you just hate poor people um that that would be an example of an ad hominem attack and how it can be used in the political and you know the economic sense so there's a lot of different things that 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 happens you know in this in this case and you have to kind of look at it as it comes and take it for what it is and understand that the reality of the situation is that you shouldn't take this – I mean obviously take it personally to some extent. But realize that this is just a tactic that people use to win an argument rather than – you know, an argument shouldn't necessarily be, be, be about winning and losing. It should be you know, coming to whatever is the truth is at the moment. It shouldn't be about, oh, i going to win my point or they're going to win their point and it's about winning. It's not about winning or losing. Like I said, it's about finding the truth. Every argument should be about that and that's kind of you know the guide I guess to – I guess it's like a rule of thumb in, in, in regards to having meaningful discussions with people. Um, another type of fallacy that people probably have heard of is the red herring. So the red herring is when the arguer changes the subject and takes the listener down uh, a different un- unrelated path. So an example of this would be um, you know, environmentalists are continually harping about the dangers of nuclear power. Unfortunately, electricity is dangerous no matter where it comes from. Every year, hundreds of people are electrocuted by accidents. Um, since most of the accidents are caused by carelessness, they could be avoided if people would just exercise greater caution. You could see how you know it started off somewhere and then went a com- went down a completely unrelated path, and how that can really diverge the conversation and take the conversation uh, down a in a in a place that doesn't allow the individuals there to uh, cover what's really the meat of the conversation there. Because when that happens, you know, it's 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 pretty demoralizing in a conversation. And like I said, it's it's a pathway through an argument. You know, the, the arguer goes off a ta- off on a tangent and, you know, raising a side issue. Obviously, it distracts the, the audience or distracts, you know, the person who's, you know, try, they're trying to listen to and argue from, argue with from what's really at stake. 
you know, often the argument never returns to the original issue when, when red herrings happen. Um, and this is, you know, people, some, you know, people do this. And the thing I guess to mention about logical fallacies is that people commit logical fallacies, um, and use logical fallacies because in, in moments and times they, they do realize what they're doing and they, they are cognizant of, of them using these tactics and they will use these tactics because they know this is the way to win. And other times people just use these tactics because they just are lazy arguers or lazy, you know, are pretty lazy at discussing things with one another. And these are just easy way outs of, co- of conversations versus actually getting, you know, getting to the details and act- and breaking things down and unpacking things. Um, this is essential to understand that not every time it's some, you know, power play where a person is realizing, uh, that I, I can be going to use these tactics in order to get a person off their, their, their arguments. So, you know, regardless, they might have better arguments than me, but if I use these tactics, I can come out as a winner at the end versus, oh, I am just going to have a conversation with somebody and, oh, I happen to use these tactics by accident. Uh, versus, you know, actually using these tactics themselves. Um, so that's kind of what a red herring, you know, does. It can kind of, you know, again, back to red herring. It's, um, it it can create an alternate path that doesn't allow anybody to get to the truth of what is actually being stated at the beginning and what's actually important. So that's one of the big issues that people face when dealing with logical fallacies. Um Guilt by association is another one. So in this one, the arguer suggests that her opponent's view should be rejected because the opponent is a member of a perceived disputable group or that views of the opponent are held by persons of a disreputable group. Um, so one way of, of, of mentioning this is, you know, you know, for instance, people talk about Medicare for all and everything. Uh, so nationalized an example would be nationalized healthcare programs are unacceptable because they are uh, sort of a thing that communists support. Uh, that's guilt by association, and that's you know it's a lazy argument, you know, arguments, and it's uh, it's not real. I mean, it's just not a real way of looking at things. Um, another example um, would be uh, politician X one spoke to the leader of this group. And, you know, this group happens to have atrocious views or politician X might, you know, in, in the case of historical case, um, President uh, Barack Obama, his uh, pastor said some uh, emotionally charged statements during one of his sermons. And, you know, everybody tried to say, that, well, oh, that's his pastor. What do you think about him? What do you think about the country? And it's just like it's it's guilt by association and it's stupid and it has no place in, you know, meaningful environments like um the halls of power and you know of influence like government um these i mean obviously this is used a lot by by you know politicians and people within uh government people within business you know these these fallacies are used because it's an easy way to get people on your side and look at the other person as you know oh they're they they support this because they're friends with this person or they they know this person it's it's not it's not actually real. It's it's a very fake way of 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 dealing with somebody and their and their views. Um, and you know, guilt by association a lot of the time, um, used, can be used in a lot of 
right ways. So like, I mean, and, and obviously it's not, not every time and every point is guilt by association, I would say negative or bad, I guess in, in some cases, if you support somebody and you are friends with somebody who you know does vile, horrible things, then that tells me something about, you know, the people you try to keep company with. So I'm not trying to say that there isn't some, you know, truth to the idea that, you know, just because, yes, they, they might, they might, it might tell me something about the person's views in a sense of like, this is the type of company that they keep. Um, but also tells me that it doesn't tell me anything about their, whether their argument is right or wrong or whether what they believe in something is right or wrong. Somebody can be, you know, be friends with horrible people and have connections and associations with horrible people, but it doesn't necessarily mean what they're saying is right or wrong or any of that stuff. It has to be taken, you know, case by case and everything has to be, the arguments have to be taken rather than, you know, the person themselves. Um, Another famous one is ad populum, and that you know comes from Latin, and it's, you know well known as the bandwagon fallacy. So, in this, the arguer appeals to the sheer number of persons who agree with the belief or the popularity of as you know of this belief as evidence that it's true. So, an example of this would be four out of five dentists recommend brushing with pure cane sugar. That would be you know an example of a ridiculous belief. Uh, that is because you say uh, it has, you know, a majority viewpoint. Therefore, it has to be true. An example is a majority of Americans believe in UFOs. Therefore, they must exist. People can't be wrong. Uh, and you can take this into those are obviously more ridiculous um, looks into it. But uh, I guess you could say, oh, 90 percent of computer users choose Mac. So therefore, Macs are the best or <laughs> it must be cool. Uh, because everyone is doing it. It's another, you know, very common, it's very commonly, you know, it's also known as appeal to popularity. And this is, you can see this being used in today in politics. Um, you can see this being used in, in economic talk. You can see this being used in, um, in every arena, everywhere, in cultural, cultural discussions. Um, you know, uh, one of the, one of the arguments I, I've heard people, you know, tell me personally about, we mentioned Medicare for all earlier. It's, uh, oh, it's, it's extremely popular with the country. Um, but okay, that's cool. That's nice that it's extremely popular with, I mean, if the poll says, you know, it's extremely popular, uh, with the country, that tells me one thing that, you know, people like the idea of it. It doesn't necessarily tell me whether it's a, a good program or something that's going to work out or something that might be flawed. So there's, so appeals to popularity don't really tell me anything other than people think a lot of people think that this is the way it is but you know masses can be right on things masses can be wrong on things um you know I, I like to think that the you know it's not always about the majority i mean you have to also think about minorities and uh in in, in societies and you know just because a majority in a society believes something doesn't mean that it's true and it doesn't mean the minority is, you know, wrong or right. It, 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 there's many different things that you can kind of take from these fallacies and these these uh, problems in conversations, these problems in reasoning that you can kind of understand the world in a little bit more, you know, higher resolution and in a clearer way, I would say. And, you know, understanding these fallacies like, you know, appeal to popularity is one of the big ones 
that a lot of people use. Uh, oh, it's a you know a border wall is highly popular. Okay, if, if that's whatever poll you're you're, you're bringing up, uh, just because you think or you know this group who's polling these people think, and the poll might be wrong. Obviously, it might be skewed one way. It might stack you know the cards in one way or one favor. Doesn't mean it's right. And just because something is popular. Uh, there isn't any validity to the claims being made. Um, so another one is uh, ad misericordium, which is uh, appeals to pity. So in this case, the arguer tries to get you to accept their view on the grounds that they will be harmed if you don't. Um, so one example is I really need you to give me an A in this course. I know I didn't do that well, but you know an average grade will bring my grade to the you know. Or bring my my GPA down, so this is uh, an appeal to pity. Um, another one, <laughs> kind of ridiculous, but just do as I ask before you give me a heart attack. You know, that's these these things are used a lot in conversation, and used a lot in like I said. I mean, it's not just conversations with one another. This is used in a national conversation, on a social societal conversations, being used that you know just. You know, you have to accept my grounds of my argument and my basis of my argument. Otherwise, I will be harmed if you don't. And I think that, you know, appeals to pity. And all these things are appealing to our emotions. And yes, our emotions are important. And you have to look at, you know, issues and, you know, problems with your emotions, of course. But you primarily have to use your brain and your reasoning skills to figure out what is really at hand here. What's really going on? Yeah, I mean, you can't. I'm not saying you, know, you, you have to get rid of emotions and be Spock. You have to include your emotions in there, but your emotions have to be based. Uh, I mean, take your emotions, you know, have them, but you have to then look at it objectively and look at the problems facing us objectively. You can't have a subjective viewpoint, you know, that's being built around your emotions going in and then causing you to make a decision based on these emotions you're feeling. Most people do tend to to respond that way and act act in that way, and all I can say is that it does cause some issues and it does cause um, people to not accurately deduce what's really going on in an environment. Therefore, problem when when people make these decisions, the outcomes don't you know tend to go in their favor. What they thought would be the right right way of going down. Um, so another one, another very common one is. Um, appeals to force or fear. In this case, the arguer tries to get you to accept their view on the grounds that you will be harmed if you don't. The use, you know, they use attempt to uh, motivate you from fear rather than logically persuade you. So an ex example of this is uh, one of the examples is: so you're an animal rights activist. I'd consider changing my views if I were you, because most of us here on the prairies are beef farmers and you wouldn't care too much for your kind. So that's an example where, you know, a beef farmer is uh, giving an animal rights activist uh, a threatening statement about, uh, about the situation and kind of appealing to force and fear. So this is used a lot. Um, this is used a lot. I mean, everybody has kind of had this in their life. Just think about the times you've pissed off your parents when you were younger and the appeals to force or fear that they would uh, put upon. Uh, it's not it's not a way of arguing, right? It's just a way of in, in, instilling, in a, instilling an emotion that gets somebody to do something you want them to do or agree with you in a certain way or certain position. 
So one way of of looking at this is there is the appeal to force or fear that we can experience within our own lives. Primarily, it's done by authority figures when we grew when we were, when we were young. So it's parents, teachers, um, older kids. Uh, this many many times when you're young, you you hear from those individuals. A lot of the times, their appeals are mostly appeals to force rather than appeals to pity or appeal appeals to popularity. Um, so most of the time, it's appeals to force. And uh, one thing that I can say is, you know, you have the personal interactions with this type of appeal, but then there's also the um, appeals to force that is being pursued every day by by the state. So for instance, if you choose to uh, take a medicine that hasn't been cleared by the FDA yet and it's experimenting, you know, it's an experimental drug and it's not clear, if you have that drug, you'll be sent to jail. Um, that's an appeal to force. Like say don't do don't do these types of drugs until we you know give you an okay on them. Otherwise you'll be put in a jail cell and you know suffer even more. And another thing you could bring up is uh, marijuana legalization. Um, do not do not you know ingest this plant. Otherwise, you'll be put into a jail cell, and you'll have to uh, pay this much amount of money and go through the system. Um, the way the state operates, you know, uh, as most people probably have heard me say in the past, you know, the government has a monopoly on force, a monopoly on violence, and they tend to use the appeal to force and appeal to violence a lot primarily within foreign policy, but also domestically. You could see how that's being used in some of our laws and how a lot of our laws and our justice system is punitive rather than trying to rehabilitate people and get people back into the workforce, back into society as, you know, good, as good, you know, upstanding citizens versus, you know, creating, basically creating, you're, you're creating a different class of individuals by, uh, the the punitive things that do happen within jails and within the just criminal justice system, and I'm particularly talking about nonviolent offenders, right? I'm not talking about violent offenders or offenders that are harming people. That's not what I'm trying to say here. Particularly, I'm speaking this to nonviolent offenders and how the appeal of force is used against people, uh, and pretty much it's used in a government in a governmental way. That allows people to, you know, fear their the people who you know are on their streets, running their streets, or uh, the people who are in their government governmental buildings. That you know, the appeal to force or the appeal to fear. Like I said, it's being it's been used many times in foreign policy uh, within the United States, and obviously other countries. It's not just us that uses all this stuff. Every every country does do these appeals. Um, just like every peep, every every type of person has done these appeals, and uh, specifically to force. Um, but this is one way of understanding how uh, this particular logical fallacy can affect you in a personal way, but also in a way that's um, more overbearing through the state, through laws that are you know punitive to people that commit nonviolent you know crimes. So then. There's another one out there, another great appeal that they tend that people tend to use is called the appeal to to, to tradition, <laughs> the appeal to tradition. 
Um, the argument bases the acceptance of the position on the mere fact that they have always believed it or that it has always been accepted that it is true. So an example is, although horrendous in our eyes, the burning of the wives of deceased men should be considered morally acceptable since the society in question has been doing it for centuries. Um, so the appeal to tradition is usually used in a lot of ways, not in support of our necessarily our traditions in in the uh, at least this is my analysis in terms of culturally. It's not using our analysis. It's not using our analysis of Western culture in particular. Not many people are making appeals to tradition in Western culture, which I think is because people tend to understand that tradition is not what Western culture is about. Um, uh, it's about, you know, the enlightenment and uh, all this other stuff that has been built and, you know, the post enlightenment and all these ideas that have been, uh, put into effect. But the appeal to tradition usually happens in cases, at least I've experienced it personally, when, you know, discussing things, uh, uh culture, cultural norms, you know, between different cultures and people that, um, are cultural relativists that believe that you know all cultures are equal essentially and that no culture is better than one another and i'll make an i'll make a point that you know there's cultures in the world that do certain things to minorities uh women uh religious minorities um lgbt uh you know individuals in their society that are abhorrent and violent and oppressive um but you know in many cases, a person will say, you know, an extreme cultural relativist that doesn't really have a moral center will say, oh, well, you know, we, who are we to say that this is uh, our cultural standards or the right standards? This is, this is their culture. This is their tradition. This is their society. We shouldn't have a say what's right or wrong. And it's like, uh, yeah, we should because, you know, morals are objective, at least in my eyes. Morals are objective and, you know, Harming an individual, you know, wrongly, uh, is always bad. <laughs> it's always wrong. Committing force against somebody who's peaceful and hasn't done anything is always wrong. And I don't think you can. Oh, I don't think you can find the right justification for that. I don't think any cultural distinction is a justification. But many people will appeal to tradition, in effect, to make an argument that we shouldn't be putting our so, I mean, it's a very, you know, quote unquote progressive uh, viewpoint in the sense that, you know, we shouldn't be imposing our Western standards upon other cultures. But, you know, quote unquote, whatever Western standards mean, I just like to think of them as, you know, human rights uh, should be uh, should be the norm and the standard throughout the world. Uh, and people should respect human rights versus saying, oh, well, you know, it's it's a different culture. It's a different tradition. We should we should be more accepting of this and more tolerant. It's like I don't think that's the way to to accurately and uh, safely put. I don't think it's a way of, to view life, a healthy way to view life. But I don't think it's an accurate way to deal with the problems we face as a society and as a world. Um. So fallacies of inference or inductive fallacies, I guess, is a little different now. So these these types of you know these this cat this category of of uh, fallacies is for you know is inductive or faulty generalizations, arguments that are improperly moved from a specific instances to a general rules. So a post hoc fallacy, short for post hoc ergo propter hoc, which means after this, therefore caused by this. This fallacy assumed that. Just because B happened after A, it must have been caused by A. 
So this is a huge one politicians love is uh, just because this happened after this, therefore, you know, this caused it. Um, it's it's a very common thing that people do. So an example is uh, since Governor Bush took office, unemployment of minorities in the state have decreased by 7 percent. Governor Bush should be applauded for reducing unemployment among minorities. You know, before we pat the governor on the back, you know, the speaker must show that Bush Bush's policies are responsible for decrease in unemployment. It is not enough to show the decrease came after his election. There, obviously, there's a trend. This is, you know, this is a very common thing we see. In, that's, you know, uh, that's you know, a discussion about, you know, uh, uh, Jeb Bush, uh, Governor Jeb Bush. But I guess a, a statement today about, you know, Trump concerning the economy when when he was beginning his uh his uh stay in office <laughs> he was talking about how good the economy is and everything and it's like well you know a lot of this has been trending and it was trending before you got here so there is a trend that comes in between you and what happened in the last presidency and the trend was caused because of the last presidency and the trend is continuing so it's it's quite you know, it's quite a ridiculous way of looking at things. And politicians will obviously use the statement uh, that, you know, in this way to to in- inquire that because of what they did, things are fantastic, now are great. And in reality, things were getting better over time. And if you look at, you know, don't look at the headlines, look at the trend lines. That's a big thing that I've you know taken from a few uh scientists out there when they talk about these types of things uh, is trend lines are more important than the headlines. Uh, another one is ad – another fallacy here um, is ad ignoratum. So the arguer uses the fact that a proposition has not been disproved as evidence. Therefore, the proposition is true or if it has not been proven, then it's false. So people – example here is uh, people have been trying for centuries to provide conclusive evidence that astrology doesn't work, but they haven't. Therefore, we must conclude that the claims of astrology are true. Uh, that's just not a, not a good way of looking at things. Uh, it, it's a it's a very um, it's a very it's a very lazy way of looking at things. And but it happens to all of us. We all do make these errors. Um, we all do make these these you know ju- these you know pr- commit these fallacies to the point that. It does cause quite a bit of confusion with other people, especially in discussing these things. Um, another one, another fallacy out here is uh, hasty generalizations. So a hasty generalization is a conclusion based on the insufficient or, or, or unrepresentative evidence. So stereotyping and sexism are forms of this fallacy. Uh, so examples of this would be uh, jokes based on stereotypes and jokes based on sexism that's a, that's an example of a hasty generalization obviously uh it's it's not a good uh, a good way of looking at a good good way of looking at the world or anything like that if you believe people with black hair are rude therefore all people with black hair have bad manners and like that's not a good way of looking at the world uh and it's and but a lot of people do uh, make these generalizations because they might know a few people or maybe one or two people with black hair and they obviously have insufficient evidence to make a general claim about all people with you know that particular hair color so it creates it creates a situation where people are using their 
their lack of data to make a generalization about a group or about an idea or something like that. So, you know, any argument that draws a generalization based on a small unresentative sample causes these problems. And that's what it really is. Next one is a false analogy. So analogy points out similarity in things that are otherwise different. A false analogy claims comparison when different when differences outweigh similarities. Essentially, it's comparing apples to oranges. So when people you know tend to do that. So an example here is like if we can put a put a man on the moon, why can't we find a cure for a common cold? Uh, they completely unrelated and have nothing to do with with each other, and it's not even in the realm of the same sciences. Uh, Yes, I mean they're, they're they're related to science, but they're completely different, uh, and the more they're more different than they are similar, and that's the problem with the false analogy. Uh, so there's also similar to that is a fallacy of false premise or ambiguity. False uh, fallacies of ambiguity appear to support their conclusions only due to their imprecise use of language. Once terms are clarified, fallacies of ambiguity are exposed. It is you know. It, it is to avoid fallacies of this type that you know philosophers often carefully define their terms before launching into an argument. That's kind of why you know this show we try to at least define certain things before we start talking about them, so people have a general idea of what we're talking about and not what they might think we we're talking about. Uh, another common fallacy is a straw man. So in this case, the arguer makes her own. His or her own position appears stronger by misrepresenting her opponent's position. Uh, in this case, you know, uh, an example here would be uh, – I'm trying to think. Here's one. Here's a good one. Uh, Mr. Jones has argued against prayer in public schools. Obviously, Mr. Jones advocates for atheism. But atheism is what they've used, in, uh, what they've used to have in Russia. Atheism leads to suppression of all religions and replacement of God by an, um, by an omnipotent state. Is that what this we want for this country? I hardly think so. Clearly, Mr. Jones' argument is nonsense. But is that really what Mr. Mr. Jones was arguing? Is that, is that what he was trying to say? No. But you could see that the person making this point against Mr. Jones makes his position or her position – appears stronger by misrepresenting the views of the other person. And by, you know, in this case, misrepresenting and also using uh, a uh, connection, you know, connecting them to the to to Russia and communism, uh, which makes everybody feel, you know, it's a guilt by association as well. So it makes everybody feel a certain way. You can see how this is used. This, you know, this, is a, this example is kind of a dual example in a way. But straw men are used all the time. And, you know, one thing I, I try to promote is uh, this concept of the steel manning or a steel man. Uh, and the steel man concept is before anybody talks to somebody about uh, their positions, you would go ahead and d describe as best as you can the op your opponent's position to them and see if they agree with that. And they do the same to you. You're basically building up their argument to a really good and solid point and then being able to talk about the argument itself uh, the, or the the actual topics at hand and then be able to – and at that point, they agree with the way you're looking at their argument and you you agree with the way that they're looking at your argument. So there's no confusion. There's no point of – you know. So that's a good way to, to go against and you know d beat 
straw men uh, arguments is to start off by steel manning. Um, there's another famous one called, you know, the hypothesis is contrary to the fact. So you start with a hypothesis that's not true and draw conclusions from it. Uh, so another way of looking at that, if Columbus has never found America, the islanders would have never been decimated by disease. Uh, that's not necessarily true because someone else could have been there, gone there later, right? So that's just not a good way of looking at it. And then there's also the fallacy of the either-or false dilemma. So a false dilemma asserts that a complex situation can have only two possible outcomes that one uh, of the option is necessary or preferable. Uh, this, so this falsely implies that – so either either go to college or forget about making money. That's a really common one, either-or. Uh, so this falsely implies that college education is a prerequisite for financial success. There's a bunch of people out there. Uh, that so the, the stats show that yes there is a, a big correlation there but correlation isn't causation. Um, but there's there's a lot of people out there that do not have traditional college degrees but are doing very well for themselves and for their families. Um, and one of the last ones I want to speak about today before we end the show, one that I think is really important and is being used today, is the zero sum fallacy. So the zero-sum fallacy, uh, and this comes from game theory, right? Um, zero-sum describes a game where only one player's gain is to lose to other players, and the total amount of available money or playing chips is fixed. So logical fallacy often occurs when this particular game theory is applied to economic or political discussions among non-economists, leading to false beliefs that the amount of wealth or jobs in the economy is fixed. So you can see how this is being used particularly in society has been used for for decades you know as um columnist pg o'rourke has written uh ironically put it let's put it that way uh in this zero-sum universe there is only so much happiness the idea that if we wipe the smile off faces of uh or wipe the smile off the faces of people with prosperous businesses and successful and successful careers that will make the rest of us grin there's only so much money that the people who have money are hogging it. The only way uh, for the rest of us to get money is to turn the hogs into bacon. Uh, and I think you know the idea of the zero-sum fallacy causes a lot of people uh, to look at the world in a certain way. And you know the zero-sum fallacy, in a lot of ways, it can be you know self-fulfilling. So there's a lot of ways that people need to work to avoid it. Um, this idea that if there's a fixed pie and if one person gets more than that, then that person gets less. It's, the idea is that there isn't growth. There isn't. There is no ability for growth. And I think the the reality is is if you go back into history, be say 250 years ago, 300 years ago, let's put it that way. Um, everybody was a subsistence farmer. And in the world, and basically there was no division of labor, no, none of this stuff. Everybody was farming. Then the Industrial Revolution came by and many people were very afraid and very uh, scared for their jobs. Um, very famously, the Luddites in Britain destroyed, destroyed machines uh, in, you know, in, in factories because they thought the machines were killing their jobs. And the reality is, is today, because of the, I mean, the Industrial Revolution, there's more jobs than there ever have been in the world. And people have the ability to survive and thrive and take care of their families 
because of that. So it didn't destroy jobs. It created more jobs than anything. And I think a big thing that people are missing about today's era is that, yes, there's there's a lot of things coming into the field that could threaten jobs, you know, the automation with AI and all those other things. But I think the important thing to know is the zero-sum way of looking at the world isn't an accurate way of looking at the world. The world isn't a zero-sum game. It's a positive-sum game. And to end on this, there's a ton of we, – we mentioned a ton of fallacies today. We talked about a bunch of fallacies. And how this affects, you know, our personal interactions with people, but as well as our interactions with the state, our interactions with authority uh, figures and interactions with, uh, you know, society itself. The important thing is to understand, I guess, through the main thing I wanted to get across through this, through this conversation today is that fallacies are, very, are commonly used uh, a lot by people, by one another. You've, you've done them. You've probably used them in the past and you probably will use them in the future. Other people have used them uh, and, and used them to you and try to appeal to your emotions. I guess the important thing to look at this is to understand what they are and how to, you know, figure out how, you know, what's being used against you in a discussion and when someone is trying to manipulate you to going their way through these different types of fallacies by appealing to your emotions. So it's always important to understand what these things are and how they're being used against you. But it's also important the, – the main thing I want you to take away from today is understand that these things aren't always used consciously. These things are you know, sometimes used unconsciously by people who haven't learned you know, the right way to have a discussion about certain things. So don't take a lot of this stuff personal. Take this stuff as it comes to you and realize what's going on and then try to, you know, make a point. Like, hey, that's a, that's not, that's not a good way of looking at that. That's a fallacy. Try, you know, calling people out on this and then that would be able to, you know, remove the tension in the room caused by the, you know, some of these statements and some of these fallacies that people bring up. But it's, what's important, what's essential is it's very common. It's used by everybody. It's used by politicians. It's used by people you know, people you love. It's used by you. But it's important to remove these types of argumentative tactics from our lives because it's – you become an emotional hostage when these things are used and you have to respond in a way that might not be the way you want to respond in that moment. So it's important to realize you have to respond graciously but also at the same time important to realize that these things happen a lot. You probably haven't noticed it until, you know, you look for certain things like this. But like I said, don't take it personal and try to correct the conversation and move the conversation going so you can get to the truth of what's really going on in whatever discussion you're having with somebody else. So I want to thank you for listening today and I really appreciate all this and I appreciate you guys out there listening uh, and uh, have a good one. Take care.